we begin, on your handout, I just want to say, under number three, uh, where each of the dots are, where, where they are, um, each one of those dots are, is a different application of foot washing. So I didn't make that clear, I don't think. So when we get to that, you'll see that, that those dots represent three different applications of what foot washing is representing. Okay. Okay, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, uh, thank you for loving us in Jesus Christ. And you have loved us to the uttermost. And we thank you for this passage and we thank you for all that it teaches us in 30 short verses that it has so much to teach our hearts. And I pray you would be with us today as we talk about it and that you would... Um, just write it upon our hearts, Lord. We pray that we would be different. Father, I pray that that you would take all of these things that we're going to talk about, that you would use them, that you would be glorified. I pray that Jesus Christ would would be glorified in our midst today. And Father, would you let me not say anything unworthy, but let us um, just enlarge our hearts by your Spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. If you remember, the passage last week that Kay taught on brought us to an end of Jesus' time of public ministry. And what happened is in that passage that we began to understand that the hour of Jesus' death was approaching. And so now we come to the place where where he has ended that, that time, and now we are coming to the moments where he is going to be preparing his disciples for his departure. At the end of D.A. Carson's um, commentary, and I hope you didn't say this last week, because, I don't know, I was out of town. Um, so, um, at the end of, of chapter 12, D.A. Carson writes this. He He says, Jesus has lived in unqualified obedience to his father, and he is now about to die in the same unqualified obedience. For he who is the word made flesh is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you've you've listened to that, we could kind of say that, that all we have done after we did the prologue, all that we have done until the end of last week has been Jesus's um, public proclamation. And what has he been doing then? He's been revealing himself as the word made flesh. He's kind of, how has he done that? Well, he's done it in, in the healings that he did, healing the blind man, healing the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He did it in raising Lazarus from the dead. He did it by, um, by his teachings when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. When he taught us that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the for the sheep. In all of these ways, he's been showing us who he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Word become flesh, that he is the promised Messiah. And so we spent that time last week, uh, I mean, during all of our weeks, talking more about the uh, Word made flesh. But now, in that where we are in our passages is that we are going to begin to see the Lamb of God preparing to take away the sin of the world. 
And so we come to our chapter today, and our chapter uh, consists of verses 1 through 30 of chapter 13. So before we look at the passage itself, we have a couple of introductory things to do. And the first thing we want to do is that, that we want to see how <laughs> we want to see how um, this passage fits into the flow of the rest of John. So it's not part, our passage today is not part of the public proclamation. We finished that. But um, what we're coming into is the, is the section known as the farewell discourse. And so in many um, commentaries, the farewell discourse begins around verse 31 of chapter 13. And it goes through chapter 17, which is the high priestly prayer. So that leaves our little, our 30 verses just hanging out there. We aren't part of that. We aren't part of that. So we're going to, as we go along, we're going to begin to discuss, well, then what is this little passage? Why do we not fit here? Why do we not fit there? So we'll look at that a little bit this morning. But our main focus this morning is that we're going to try to discover what John wanted his readers to understand about what happened that night in the upper room. And I think we can find a clue, and we talked about this in small group also, I think we can find some clues in the fact that the content gives us so many contrasts. I mean, we have, we have belief, we have unbelief, light, darkness, we have love, we have betrayal, we have servanthood, we have self-seeking, we have Jesus, we have Satan, we have disciples, we have Judas. All of, those, all of those things are divisions. All of those things are contrasts. And those very contrasts begin to show us that an upheaval is about to happen. And so as we are going to see that what is beginning to happen is that we are beginning to see the separation of light between darkness. And so we're going to discover that as we go along this morning. Okay, so now as we, we begin to look at our passage... Before we actually get into the action of what happens, we have some information given to us. And here's what I want you to know, and I've put this on your handout, that how we read verse 1 can actually guide much of how we read the rest of the passage. Okay, so here's how verse 1 reads. It reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the uttermost, or he loved them to the end, or he loved them to the full extent of his love. Now, if you read that passage as just part, that's just verse 1 of all the rest, if you read it like that, then most likely you are going to have to understand that this passage does, it, that we're going to be talking about does not take place at the Passover. Because it says before the, the feast of the Passover. So you would have to say then when it says, when we begin talking about the supper, that it's a different meal. That's a different, it's, it's the night before the Passover. That's how R.C. Sproul reads this passage. However, all of the other commentators I read does not read it this way. And, and so how can, how can we switch that out? Well, 
If we look at verse 1 as an overall introduction, not only of our chapter for today, but of all the chapters until we arrive at the cross, if you look at it in that way, then it begins to make a difference. So let me try to clear this up. If we read verse 1 in this way, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. What, how did he know that hour was coming? Well, you talked about that last week when the Gentiles came. It says that it says in that passage that at that moment, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So if you look at that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come, that his hour had come, it's referring back to that. And his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. So if that is a big heading, then it makes us possible then to go into the next, the next passage and say that now this is at the Passover. Okay? Uh, that's a little complicated, but this gets so confusing if you don't think this is the feast of the Passover. So... If, indeed, we are talking about that that's just an introductory passage, and we, then we come to verses 2 and 3. And verses 2 and 3 say this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Okay, so that's giving us a lot of information, and it's information that we're going to take into our passage today. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that Judas Iscariot had, Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot had already, um, it was already in his heart to betray Jesus, and that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had all authority, and that he had come from God, and he was going back to God. So what did he do when that happened? When he knew all of those things, he knew who, where he had come from, he knew where he was going, he knew someone was going to betray him, and he knew he had all power. What did he do? He rose up from supper. That's what he did. And so now Jesus has arisen from the table is set for the Passover meal. And Jesus gets up, and he walks over, and all eyes are on him. And, and as he does this, he's doing the strangest thing. He takes off his outer garment, and he lays them aside. And then he begins to pour water into a basin, and then he takes a towel, and he ties it around his waist. And then he pours water into the basin. What's he doing? He's dressing as the most menial of slaves. Actually, the people who usually, the slave who usually does the foot washing is the lowest of the low in the house. And now Jesus begins to move around the table. And he actually bends over and he takes the foot of the first disciple he comes to and he washes it and he washes the second foot. And then he dries it with a towel that's around his waist. And it seems there's stunned silence. Perhaps there are looks exchanged, maybe looks of astonishment. But no comments are made until, until Jesus comes to Peter. And he come, when he comes to Peter, what does Peter say? He says, 
Lord, do you wash my feet? And then he said, and then we hear that voice. And he says, Peter, what I am doing now, you do not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. And so Jesus says that. Now, what would you expect? Jesus says, okay, Peter, I know. This is really strange, I know. But you're not going to understand this now. But you'll understand it later. And so you can imagine that Jesus would then, of course, expect Peter at that point to let him wash his feet, to trust the Lord. Well, Peter doesn't quite do that. And I, and I guess, I mean, let's stand back and think about it. I can kind of understand that this was really hard for Peter. I mean, this is the word made flesh. This is, this is the promised one. This is the one in whom Peter has put all of his hope. This is the one that he has been following and watching and seeing all of these things. This is the one he loves. And Peter cannot at this point understand that what Jesus is now doing is pointing to an even greater act of humility and love at a cost so great it is beyond telling. He is just astonished at what he's doing here. And so Peter says, goes over the top as he always does. And he says, you shall never wash my feet. And the, the commentaries say, Peter say, says this with something like outrage. And the commentator, one commentator writes this, he says, Peter is still thinking at no higher level than what is socially fitting. He cannot stand the idea that Jesus is washing his feet. Even though Jesus has told him, you're not going to understand it now. You'll understand it afterwards. Another commentator said this, and I love this. He says, unfortunately, Peter does his thinking out loud. He's one of those people who just says everything. He just blurts it out. So again, Jesus speaks patiently and yet with authority. And he says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you will have no share in me. Now, obviously, obviously here, Jesus is speaking beyond foot washing that he's pointing to something beyond what is going on here because washing his feet is not what is going to make Jesus make Peter have part in Jesus it is an important moment and it's in a moment that that the lord has said to peter you're going to understand this later it's it's a moment that at, after the cross peter will have this to come back to his mind Peter will have a lot of things to come back to his mind after the cross. But something about what, what the Lord says here changes Peter's minds a little bit. Okay, he said, okay, if, I'm, if, if I won't have any part of you, and he probably is thinking, if I won't have blessing with you, maybe I, I better change this. And so what does he say? He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, Jesus has another reply to Peter, and he says this, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. Okay, we're getting to a little more complicated. So the first 
point under foot washing is is that it's pointing to the cross. That's the first application of what the foot washing is doing. Now we're going to have something a little different. So Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet. What's he talking about here? Well, Jesus is using this enormous act of love and humility to point to the greater, greater love and humility on the cross. That's why he explained to Peter he wouldn't understand it. But now what he is doing, when he, when he comes to Peter the first time, and Peter refuses, and Jesus says, and Jesus says to him, that, and Jesus, I mean, and Peter says to Jesus that he, he is not going to wash his feet. Then Jesus has deepened in the first part the symbolism of what he was doing. If I do not wash you, you will have no share in me. So obviously what's going on here is that Peter needs more teaching. He needs to understand something deeper. And when he goes over the top and says, okay, not just my feet, but my hands and my head, and Jesus says, once you have bathed in the power of the cross, this is what, this is what he's saying. This is, I'm, I'm putting the words here to what he's saying. Once you have bathed in the power of the cross, you need never wash again. Except your feet. And what Jesus is saying is this. Look, Peter, you don't need me to wash your hands and your, and your head. What, what I am doing is this. Once you have put your faith in my death for you on the cross, that is forever and ever and ever. That never goes away. And you are clean. And it's as if Jesus is saying what Jesus is saying. If you have bathed and you're clean, you, ne- you don't need to bathe again, but you might need to wash your feet. It's like he's talking about going to someone's house. And he's saying, you bathe before you go and you're clean. And when you get there, you don't bathe again. But you may need to wash your feet. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, when it comes to the cross, once I die for you, once you put your faith in that, that never needs to happen again. You are absolutely clean. You are clean forever and ever. But you will need, you will need, you're still a sinner. You will need confession. You will need to come and have your, you will need to wash your feet. But you see, Peter was completely missing what Jesus was teaching. And so at this point, D.A. Carson writes, he says, the point is that this verse has launched into a new application of foot washing. The first application used the act of foot washing to symbolize Christ's cleansing death at the cross. The second makes the point that foot washing is for the continual repentance of sin. But now Jesus adds, that the disciples are clean. He's talking about the disciples here. This is where this gets all so complicated. Okay, so now he's adding this. He says, okay, the disciples are, Jesus adds, all the disciples are clean. And he's talking about prospectively. He's talking about that when I go to the cross, I'm going to the cross for you. And when I die on the cross, you're clean, all of you. You are all clean, but not all of you. Not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And even though Jesus had most certainly washed Judas's feet, the cross would not apply to him because he was the betrayer of the Lord Jesus. 
because as we will see that Satan is the one who filled Jesus's heart. He did not have faith in what Jesus was going to do. Okay, that's all very complicated, I know, but if we can just say that the first way that Jesus used the foot washing was to point to the cross. The second way is to say that that foot washing now in this particular thing says, if you have put your faith in the cross, you don't need to wash again. It's for continual repentance. And so we stand back and we think that Jesus has been showing the disciples his uttermost love for them. He has done this by his example of utter humility and self-giving, which pointed to an even greater act of uttermost love. And so now, after that has been done, they go back to the table. Jesus sits down, it's the Passover meal, and perhaps, and perhaps lying before them is the Passover lamb, which would point to Jesus Christ. And it's lying before them, and Jesus says to his disciples, do you understand what I have done? And so now Jesus is going to illustrate to them the third application of his act of foot washing. And here's what he says. He reminds them that they call him teacher and Lord, and he says, and you are right. And then he tells them that they should serve in the same way, that they should wash one another's feet. And to make sure that they understand, Jesus then tells them, I have given you an example that I want you to follow. Love with the love I love, with which I love you, is basically what he's saying. Jesus wants the disciples to see the cross not only as something that saves them eternally, to see that that. They will, yes, they will need repentance and faith as they go along. But also that Jesus is showing them his love to the uttermost, and he wants them then to go forth and show that kind of love to other people. Now, it may seem a little strange that Jesus uses the cross and uses the foot washing to point to the cross. And then we have all these different applications. But as one commentator said, and I love this, he says, how can he not use the cross? The foot washing is pointing to the cross, and how can he not use this in all these different applications because the cross reaches us to a vast array of applications of love and forgiveness that never ends. Okay, so now we're coming near the end of the evening. It's been an evening of surprises for the disciples, but it's not over yet. In the glow of Jesus' love and humility for them, Jesus begins to unfold with more clarity what he has up to now only hinted. He says, I am not speaking, and we're talking about the betrayal now. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, just imagine you're sitting here around the table and you've had Jesus do this amazing thing and it's shaken your world. And then you begin to understand more and more. You don't understand 
exactly, but you know that Jesus is telling you how much he loves you. And now he's saying that as you're sitting around the table, that there's someone there who is going to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows he needs to pray that, prepare them for the betrayal of one of their own. He wants them to know, and this, this was a surprise to me, and yet it wasn't. Jesus wants them to know that he had chosen all 12. Everyone sitting around that table had been chosen by Jesus to be his disciples. But what does he say here? He says, but one was chosen so that scripture would be fulfilled. One was chosen. It's astonishing, isn't it? It says, it says that one was chosen so that he would fulfill scripture and he would fulfill scripture by betraying the Lord. The statement that Jesus makes here is that it doesn't change the responsibility of Judas has for his own condemnation. Judas made choices all along that would lead to the hardening of his heart as he went along. But what Jesus says here does demonstrate the power and the measure of grace in the lives of the other disciples. Here we have this one who has been with Jesus. He's been with Jesus everywhere. He's seen all of these miracles, my friend. He saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. And all he can think about is money and greed. And he's going to betray Jesus. It's an astonishing thing. But it is the heart that we all have unless Jesus comes and pours out his grace upon us. That's who we are. That's where we're going. We would be betrayers of Jesus without grace. You see, they were all chosen out of the midst of darkness and brought into the light, not because of what they had done, but because of what Jesus has done for them. And then Jesus says this, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. I say to you that whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And we could spend all day on this passage, but we're just going to summarize. You see, Jesus is still preparing his disciples for what is to come, first the betrayal and then the cross. And he is telling them beforehand that they may more deeply understand that he and the Father are one, that his death is not something that happened to him, but something that was planned beforehand at the foundation of the world. And then he's telling them that betrayal will come. In Matthew, we read this, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then it says this, Jesus is now deeply troubled in his spirit. And he says again, truly, truly, I tell you that one of you will betray me. Now think about this. He's given hints, but he hasn't given a name. And they're all sitting there and he says, truly, I truly, I say to you, one of you will be, betray me. And the, the question hangs in the air. Who will it be? Who will it be? Because they've seen, they've all been together. They don't know. 
In Matthew, it said that all of the disciples, one by one, ask, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Even to the point that the deceit of Judas says, Rabbi, is it I? Now, as the question hangs there in silence, Peter motions to the disciple whom Jesus loved to find out the person that Jesus, of whom Jesus is speaking. Just a little parenthesis. You may have talked about this in your small groups, but I love this. Um, that when John, who is the author who is who we believe the commentators believe those who believe that he actually wrote this that he is not referring to himself as someone more loved than the others the disciple whom Jesus loved he is instead he would not write of his own name in this he did not want to refer to himself but he would only refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, the one upon whom Jesus gave grace. And that's how he wants himself remembered. So as the disciples whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved asked Jesus of whom he was speaking, Jesus told him it would be the one to whom he would give the morsel. That, the, this act is an act of supreme honor. And Jesus gives it to Judas. It's the final act of offering forgiveness. And Judas takes it. But our passage says, in a sense, it's all over then. There's no turning back because Satan completely had Judas. And so what happened? Judas sent, Jesus sent Judas, not into all the world to share the gospel, but to do what was in his black heart, and he told him to go quickly. And Judas immediately went out, and it was night, and for Judas there would never be light again. The question that I raised at the beginning before about why are our verses in 1 through 30 a unit unto themselves, I believe it is because Judas was not one whom Jesus loved to the uttermost. Before Jesus would give his farewell discord, the darkness must go. The darkness must be cast out. And so Judas left. Now, how do we close with this? I think we just need to think of these things, that there was a time, there was in space, time and history, a night somewhere in Jerusalem when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords wrapped in humanity washed the feet of his disciples, which included Judas, the one who would betray him. And he did this with the full knowledge of who he was and from where he had come. And he did it with the full knowledge that he was going to return to his father, he did it with the full knowledge that he held all authority in his hands and he could have called 10,000 angels. And yet he took the place of the lowest of slaves and he washed the feet of his, the very people that he had created 
and there was a greater event that would soon happen that was far beyond this act, an act so astonishing that no person would dare to think of it. But this time, Jesus would be beaten and mocked and forced to wear a crown of thorns. This time, he would have his clothing stripped from him and sold. This time, he would have nails in his feet. This time, he would not be washing the feet of his own, but he would be bearing their sins. This time, he would not be thinking of returning to his father, but his father would have turned his face away. This is the one who asks us to lay down our lives for one another. This is the one who asks us to pour out love the way love has been poured into our hearts. This is the one who asks us to set an example that we might wash one another's feet, that we might seek not to know who the person is so much as to love any person that we come to. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you if you do these things. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for this passage. And now we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that he would fill us with the fruit of the spirit, that we would would indeed not just know, but that we would do what you have asked of us. And we pray these things in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.